When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to the Family Brain with your host, Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Hi, thanks for listening to the Family Brain. I am Megan Gibson, and today I'll be talking with Susie Byers, Susie is the um, head teaching assistant at Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and she has a lot of really interesting information to share about a framework called adaptive leadership. Now, before you think this is not something that matters to me because I am not a leader, what's cool about this topic is that I just think there's a big disconnect between family functioning and family mental health and leadership and um, structure and organization and all the things that people are talking about in more of like the traditionally corporate field. Um, and, And in the corporate field, that's called leadership. In the family, it's called, I don't even know, trying to get in the car. But I was inspired by the things she was talking about and sort of inspired to be more of a leader and what does that mean and thinking about my own approach to family life and it can also be helpful in your professional life. So I hope you enjoy listening to her. She has a lot of great resources and I'll make sure she talks about a couple of um, graphs and charts and I'll make sure I add those in the show notes if you're interested in checking those out. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you, Susie, for joining me today on The Family Brain. I'm so excited to learn from you and hear more about the work you're doing. Um, I got the information you sent me. And to be honest, at first I looked at it and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, what if I don't know how to talk to her? Because I don't know what she's talking about. But then I looked at it a little bit more and it makes a lot of sense. Um, So your focus is on adaptive leadership. Can you just talk a little bit about that and sort of how you got into that work? Sure. Well, thank you much for interviewing me. This is such a pleasure. And graduate leadership is a framework that I learned in graduate school in 2015. And it was the most powerful framework of any that I've learned in my lifetime. And so ever since graduating, I have been teaching this framework with a very famous uh, Harvard Kennedy School professor. His name is uh, Dr. Ronald Heifetz. And he has several books that I would recommend. They're all very insightful and interesting. 
and I just recommend those towards the end. But what I will say is that this framework has uh, uh, really endless possibilities and it applies to any social system, whether it be a family of three or the United Nations or anything in between. Very cool. Well, so when you talk about adaptive leadership, what, I mean, what's like the 101 of it? You know what I mean? Like what, for those of us that aren't in that field or aren't in, um, I don't know, even thinking about these things, I looked at, so I'll, I'll make sure I, if, if it's okay with you, I can add the, the, um, graphs and the, the charts that you sent me. Is that okay if I add those to the show notes or is that? Oh, sure. sure. They are uh, attributed to Professor Haifetz and another professor um, with whom I work, Professor Timothy O'Brien. And so as long as they get credit where credit is due. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm not going to claim to invent this because I know. <laughs> but it's really interesting because I, th- I think of my husband and in the work he does. And I think that there's a lot of corporations and um, people are, who are in corporate America who maybe think more like this. Um, and that it's maybe some, some, um, techniques that can be applied to daily life and not just in the workplace. So, so what's sort of the 101 behind this adaptive leadership? Sure. So, uh, any human beings, when they're addressing problems, usually apply technical solutions to solve them. So for example, if you have a plumbing problem, in your house, you call the plumber, and the plumber comes, who's an expert, and fixes it. Similarly, um, when you know somebody has a degree in engineering, they are called for any kinds of engineering, building bridge, or you know, doing water and waste management, or whatever it is, and they are applying their know-how and expertise to address the problem. So we humans are very, very good at knowing who the experts are, and then going ahead and hiring them to fix it. Mm. So. Most problems, though, that are not solvable within a generation, um, sometimes it's generations plural that we're trying to address a problem. So, for example, institutionalized racism, uh, gun control, climate change, you know, these are really big, big problems that will not be solved in our lifetime. And Wouldn't so, it be so nice if we had a number to call, though? Like, right? Like, hey, we need, we've got a racism situation, could we, And you know, and it would be fixed. That would be right, so right. good. Deeply into these really complex, complicated problems like social workers, for example, you, Megan. Mm-hmm. We know how to call you, yeah. but you might have, you know, when you apply your uh, degree and your expertise to the problems that you're trying to address with individuals and families, you probably have the expectation that, you know, you'll move the needle, but the problem won't go away necessarily. Um, and it's certainly not as quickly as people who have the problem would like them to. In any event, uh, so the adaptive problems that are out there in the world are the big ones like what I mentioned, but also they can be um, on a smaller scale, but they're just as complicated and complex. So a good example that both my professor, um, Heifetz, and another one of my beloved professors who's at Harvard Graduate School of Education, and his name is Professor Robert Keegan. Um, so they use this analogy that illustrates it in a family. Uh, so essentially, imagine uh, a matriarch in a family who's in her 90s, and she's still driving. And you imagine that everyone in the family knows that she should probably stop driving. And there are technical solutions to this problem, like taking her keys away, or saying, oh, the car's in the shop, or whatever. 
but they might have unintended consequences if a technical solution is applied to their project problem. So really what the family needs to do is over time uh, prioritize, sequence, and case the work for her to come to the conclusion herself that it's time to give up her keys mm. and, and have somebody else be driving her around. So it's one of those um, examples of um, if it's an adaptive problem, it is something that everyone in the system needs to address for the work to be done. So um, Professor Harris talked a lot about how um, the affected stakeholders in the system, so in this example it would be everyone in the family who loves this matriarch, um, has to be involved in addressing this problem. And it doesn't have to be, you know, at Thanksgiving dinner, everyone needs to talk about it and we need to convince her by the end of the evening, but it's just one of those uh, problems that we all know what has to happen in the end, but um, if we apply technical solutions to this adaptive problem, it might have unintended consequences. For example, she might spiral into depression, or she might have this sense of no agency or control, and all of a sudden she's treated like a child, or what have you. So in that example, the adaptive problem is um, over the course of days, weeks, months, maybe even years, eventually having her come to the conclusion. And in this day and age, we have these wonderful solutions like Uber and Lyft, mm -hmm. which might make it easier yes. for somebody to address that problem. Um, but over the decades that Professor Heiss and Professor Keegan, who um, teaches a different framework called adult development, but over the decades that they've been using this example, the problem still exists. Uh, you know, being able to uh, have, a, you know, the matriarch, the patriarch decide it's time to move on with this part of my life. So that's an example of an adaptive problem. Oh, wow. That has my mind spinning about my kids because really, unfortunately, my kids feel like the matriarchs of my family. You know what I mean? Like where I will take things away as, and, and in my mind, as I'm processing this, I'm thinking, okay, I they do something I don't like, so I take away their iPad, you know? And that's almost like, to me, more of a technical solution. That's my thing. That's my go-to because I know they like it. Exactly. But if it's like I want them to be improving or increasing self-control when frustrated, me saying, that's it, you lost your iPad, probably right. isn't giving them the skills. Um, it's hard, though. It's hard. I, it, I guess it's hard as a parent to have. It takes patience, right, this type of intervention. It, it takes having your own self-control to not just right. want to call in the expert. So what do you do in that circumstance when exactly. you're struggling well, in your own, in your own, you know, mind with being right. able to do this? Well, that's a really good example. And I've struggled with this too with my three children. Uh, so that's a good segue into another uh, aspect of this framework is the difference between authority and exercising leadership. So most people conflate the two, authority and leader, they seem like the same, pretty much synonymous. Okay. Uh, Professor Heifetz works on uh, distinguishing the two. Okay. So for example, um, you are the authority figure who is able to go ahead and pull rank and take that iPad away. And as you said, uh, you want to be able to teach life skills, like Let's not turn to technology um, whenever we need a little fix of something to distract us from the work that we need to be doing or what have you. And so your job as the formal authority figure is to give the work back to your child and say, you know, how are we going to solve this problem? You know, you're 
having hypertension or you're unable to control your impulses or, you know, what have you, you can name the problem. But you can also say, you know, what do you think about it and how can we solve this problem together? And so the child might feel like, you know, sort of bewildered and confused because it is very uh, disorienting to have the formal authority figure sort of relinquish that kind of control and say, how are, how are you going to solve this problem or how are we going to solve this problem together? Um, but those are the kinds of conversations that lead to the growth and development, which is our goal in parenting, the yes. development of our children. So essentially, it takes a lot longer to do the adaptive work. It's much easier to just take away the iPad. Right. But if the adaptive work is done, it actually can be internalized and you know actually have you know life skills as a you know a huge benefit of this. Um, and that's also part of our job as parents. Right. Well, it's funny because I'm thinking, well, why do I gravitate? Because everything you're saying makes sense to me. And then I'm thinking, well, why do I gravitate towards that more authoritative, like, you know, fine, that's it. I'm taking this away. And I think it's sometimes because I don't feel like I'm the leader or in charge. And so I'm like, you know, like you said, throwing my rank around almost like, ha, look what I can do. And it's just so (laughs) juvenile. Like, really, when I think about it. But I do it all the time, and I know many parents do, um, and it's just maybe not as helpful as we might imagine, you know, like sort of wielding our power like that. Um, this is good. Right. This is coming at a good time for me. I need this pep talk. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, it really is. It really is. I have a first grade girl, a third grade boy, and a fifth grade boy. And um, they're all really, I was just um, doing an, a questionnaire for schools and, you know, that's just talking about kids' character traits and they're all super strong and leaders and um, determined and all the things you kind of want, but that are very hard to parent, you know what I mean? And so <laughs> right, it's just, right. it can be, it can be a little challenging as all parenting can be, you know, so it's, this is really a good, and I love that idea, just that little, um, little idea of that. It's about leadership and not about power, you know? And I mean, that is just a good kind of mantra, I think, because it's short and sweet. It's just like, am I being a leader or am I wielding my power right now? You know, just to kind of question myself, how, how am I intervening and what am I coming in with on my own side? And I'm probably not going to do it perfectly every time. You know, I, I mean, right. definitely not. Well, we are human beings and right. we make mistakes all the time. Yeah. <laughs> but as long as we learn from them, then they're worth it. Uh, so another distinction I just wanted to make is that sometimes it's easier to exercise uh, leadership when you don't have the formal authority role. Um, sometimes it's easier with the formal authority role. But another really important part of the framework is to notice that formal authority has both, uh, is both a resource and a constraint. So, for example, you're about to go into the teenage years. And um, you can tell the teenage years are adaptive because of how much space they take up in the bookstore about self-help. Yes. Like, how are we going to raise these children? So a good sign of an adaptive problem is that there's a huge amount of uh, resources out there in the world that are trying to apply technical fixes to the adaptive problem. Mm. So adolescence is a biggie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we know how to raise babies, we know how to raise preschoolers, we know how to raise elementary school kids. But around middle school, things get very, very messy. 
And it doesn't uh, surprise me that you said those words, you know, I, you know, my go-to is the, you know, technical fix and throwing our formal authority role, you know, in effect to make the results happen that you want. And, you know, with adolescents in particular, when the goal is to let these children, you know, flex their muscles mm. and, you know, become adults over the course of years, um, you know, it's, it's not easy, but the idea is to allow them to have more and more independence and agency and control of the decisions that they're going to be making when they are out of the house and grown adults. So they have to practice, and part of the practice is being obstreperous and rolling their eyes and, you know, screaming and, you know, saying that you're useless and mm-hmm. all of that as part of their job description. But it's also, you know, very adaptive, too, is that you're adapting to parenting a different phase of your children's lives. Right. So... Maybe I should be thankful that my kids are very obvious about it instead of it being subtle and, huh, is this happening or not happening? It's like just real clear. It's very clear what's going on. Right, right. That's true. That's true. You might have, um, you might realize it's more of a blessing than a curse to actually know what you're dealing with. Um, But, you know, teenagers also have a way of surprising you. So, (laughs) how old are your children? How old are yours? Uh, So, my youngest is 12. And I have a 16-year-old and also a 20-year-old. Oh, wow. So I okay. have a son who's the oldest and two daughters. Wow. And they hear me talk about adoptive problems all day long. And they're like, ah, mom. Oh, my gosh. I'm totally <laughs> keeping your number. You might hear from me randomly in like two years. And be like, okay, what, what's, what's going on? Um, you know what's interesting is I just had this thought about, you know, you talking about things that take up a lot of space on the bookshelves. And I'm just, I was just talking with a friend about grief. Have you guys done any work around this kind of framework with grief? Because that's one of those hard ones where there's no there's no phone number to call. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is absolutely part of the framework. Um, Professor Habeas has this whole, you know, section of his book that talks about how um, loss is um, a combination of grief and relief. Mm. Um, if we go back to the matriarch I was talking about before, you know, one day she'll perhaps fall down the stairs and break her hip and no one wants her to pass away, but maybe after a while when she's in agony and we know she's never going to recover, it's almost a relief when she passes away. And obviously grief and relief go hand in hand and it's not easy. It's part of the human experience. It's absolutely an adaptive problem. We have to adapt to life without somebody we love. And uh, I hope that answers your question. No, it's a hard one. I mean, it's just interesting because I was thinking about that and and there's just, I don't know, there's a lot written about it, but no sort of, I see, I think that's my technical leanings too. I'm like, where's the book? Where's the one book? And I think some people gravitate more that way probably, right? That want that, that easy answer. And then other people who are more aware of things being adaptive and maybe knowing how you, you're inclined can help you. Right. You know what I mean? So you can call yourself Absolutely. out when you're like looking for a resource when maybe it's more of a process than just right. a phone number or a website or a book or, you know. Right, exactly. Uh, and Professor Heidegger's first book is called Leadership Without Easy Answers. Oh. So this is what it's all about. Yeah. These are not, these are not easy problems to solve. And in fact, we, we try to talk about not coming up with solutions to adaptive problems, um, but instead coming up with options that we can uh, test. So it's almost like we can have hypotheses 
about what's really going on. Um, Professor Harris talks a lot about how the diagnosis period of a problem is more important than the action items. Um, and so another um, quote from Professor O'Brien is that um, most leadership failures are diagnostic failures and we personalize issues instead of putting the work at the center. So if we talk about um, our teenagers, uh, when they start lashing out at us, uh, which again is what they're supposed to do, they're right on schedule to do so, oftentimes we personalize it mm. and say, you know, how dare they, you know, treat me this way, here I am, you know, doing everything for them and then here they are beating me up. And instead of personalizing the issue, oh, you have to say, okay, well, what is really going on here? You know, the work at the center of a family system is, you know, essentially the growth and development of the individuals and the family. Yeah. And, you know, as children go through the teenage years especially, you know, their growth and development is exponential, and the whole family is just desperately trying to catch up. And we all have to be more empathetic and compassionate for ourselves as parents because, we are learning on the job, and mm. we don't really know what we're doing. And, you know, especially the first time around, it's like, oh, my God, please help me. And this is where the, you know, the books are flying off the shelf in right. the lesson section because we're just dying to figure out, like, how do I do this? Uh, so, you know, having patience for ourselves and helping each other, you know, it really, you know, it, it's obviously generational. You know, this adolescence uh, period is a really important rite of passage for all humans. And we can, you know, talk to our parents and our grandparents, we can talk to our peers, we can talk to others in our community who might have a different perspective. Usually it's when somebody's outside of the family system, they can see things that we don't see. And so they can, you know, for example, when I was really struggling um, with my son when he was going through adolescence and I was, I felt like a total, like, deer in headlights, I had no idea what was going on. And I asked uh, somebody that was an acquaintance of mine at my church, and I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, have you read anything? You know, I have this great book called, you know, uh, Mom, Get Out of My Life, But First Can You Drive Me to the Mall. Oh, my gosh. I, I think my it. mom read that book, too. I think that's an old right. book, right? It's a because Yes, I remember hearing about anyway, that. Yeah. And I thought to myself, yeah, you know, actually, it wasn't the book that I needed to read. Mm. It was the fact that she said to me, you don't even want to, you don't even want to talk about it what's going on. You're just complaining about how hard it is, but, and, and then she asked me the question, so how did you handle when the kids were like, you know, going through their, you know, learning how to use the toilet, you know, potty training? And I said, well, of course, I read books about it, and I went to a class about it, and I figured out what best practices are, and then, of course, I felt like I knew what I was doing, and she said, well, why don't you try to do that when you have a problem with your teenager? And I mm. said, oh, it's because I don't want to we're resentful right we're kind of resentful that we even have to I was just doing a series on um, kids and technology and as somebody was talking I started to realize like I am resentful that I have to deal with kids and technology and so I avoid it and just hope it'll go away well it's not going away you know it's just and so what do we do I know, that's true. And that also talk, um, that reminds me of how Professor Higgins talked about how we don't like the feeling when we're at the edge of our competence. Like when mm-hmm. we are up against the boundary of our competency, we want to run in the other direction. Oh my gosh. And that's like and all parenting is, right? You just kind of hang out at the is. edge. <laughs> it is. I know. There's this like one little spot between mm-hmm. like four and ten where everything's kind of okay. And it's like everything, you know, upsets the apple cart again. But 
in any event, um, yeah, it's just it's not good to feel incompetent, and so we as human beings try to avoid it. But you know, the adolescents need us too, and you know, they need our help. And thank goodness they have their teachers and, and role models and mentors. So even if we can't get through to them, there are other adults out there who can help them as well. Um, but you know, we have to do our jobs and, and you know, not take things personally, as I mentioned before, and, and try our best to. You know, really, you know, keep their growth and development at the center of what we are doing in our family system, and have, you know, just some kindness and gentleness towards ourselves about how we are also growing, developing, and coming into our own as parents as teenagers. Right. When I think one of the things that I'm thinking about while you're talking is that I get very frustrated sometimes with my kids, and and I think this is like a common thing that they are so focused on their own needs and their own, you know, and I'm trying to look at the whole family and, but that's kind of their gig, right? Like that's what kids are supposed to do. And there are a lot of adults who still are focused on themselves and, you know, so it's, it's sort of knowing that that's developmentally where they're supposed to be. Um, like the other day, one of my children who will go unnamed, I was trying to communicate with the person who was going to cut his hair and he's asking me about a gumball. And I'm like, but this man is standing right here asking you about your hair. And you're talking about this gumball you want. And it just was so to me, like, what are you doing? Like, and, but, but that's his, that's his gig, you know, like he's supposed to be just kind of focused on what he wants right now. And it's my job to sort of help him acknowledge and recognize that there's a world around him that needs attention as well, you know? And it's just, right. I think we want them to be further ahead than they are sometimes. Um, right. And maybe that's our own insecurities. You know what I mean? Coming out, like, why do I care that much? Anyway. Um, just... Right, right. Well, actually, that's a good segue into, I already mentioned Professor Keegan before, so I'm, I'm going to sprinkle in a little developmental psychology into this conversation, is that Professor Keegan talks about how there are stages of growth and development, um, and this is a theory that he's been, you know, working on for decades, and it's among many different theories. So this isn't a law of the land, but... I really appreciate this framework. So what you were just describing uh, uh, is exactly where your child should be. Mm. So that's in stage two, um, which is also called self-sovereign. And what that means is, is that that child is the center of the universe and the star of his or her own moody. And all the other players out there are kind of a mystery. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like, I'm just going to do my thing and I know, you know, I can control me, and that's really all that matters. And and that's, you know, where they should be. Mm-hmm. And then our goal is, uh, you know, we don't really say this out loud unless we've taken a forensic class, but our goal is really to help our children get to stage three, which is uh, socialized. So becoming a socialized human being mm-hmm. means that you're able to make it in the world personally and professionally. That means you can be a good friend, uh, a good coworker, you know how to contribute to society and make a difference in the world, and you're, you know, you know how to live life. And so most adults get socialized and they stay there throughout their whole lifespan. And then some get to stage four, which is called self-authoring. So as in you're the author of your own story. And essentially, what that means is that. Um, people are able to care less about what people think about them and more about the work that they're trying to get done. Mm. And a good example of this is 
uh, we can all imagine somebody like, um, you know, anyone in our world who is a little, maybe a bit abrasive and less, you know, <laughs> you know, warm and fuzzy, more on the um, cold and prickly side. Mm-hmm. But they're really like just taking care of business all day long. And of course, you know, they're probably not like that all the time. You know, some people just aren't cold and prickly people. But in general, if you have a manager like this or, or a coworker or a colleague or what have you, and they just seem like they're prioritizing whatever it is that they're working on more than the relationships, that's a signal that they might be at stage four of their growth involvement. So again, it's self-offering. Mm-hmm. And then a very small percentage of the human population gets to stage five, which is called self-transforming. And good examples of this are very famous people like Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But we don't have to be like Nelson Mandela in order to be self-transforming. There is a, a percentage of the world that gets to stage five self-transforming, and they're mere mortals, and they actually are quite remarkable because they see the world in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, they're able to see beyond what is, um, let's just say, easy. Mm-hmm. Like they're able to see a complex social system, and they're able to see both sides of an argument, and not just the black and white, but they can see all the gray areas in between. I feel like so, I know a handful of people like this, and it seems like often it comes from, I mean, this, this is interesting because it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, about grief. It's like often those are the people who have dealt with great suffering, and they come out with this yeah. just incredibly expansive view of things that you would right. never wish for the suffering, for sure. But it has brought them to this whole nother level of functioning. Yes, exactly. And and I think that um, it's it's life experience with and oftentimes negative life experience that sort of helps people, you know, move more quickly along the way. At the same time, it's not linear. You know, all of what I'm mentioning about these are not stages that are like a ladder where you go up and up and up. Mm-hmm. It just means that um, you have. Uh, a greater capacity to see the world differently. And also, you know, a good example is, you know, I might think that I'm, you know, somewhere around socialized or self-authoring, but when I go to my childhood home and I'm, you know, hungry and tired, like I go straight back to self-sovereign and I'm like, I want my dinner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of us can, you know, move through all the stages of growth and development. But, um, you know, this theory, I think, helps me a lot because I think about how, oh, this is the way that my children are making sense of the world. This is the way they're making meaning of the world. Like, their friends are everything to them. And that's exactly where they should be, you know, because they are socialized and they feel so, you know, glad to have found their people and they feel connected. And and that's really important uh, for all humans. But I think for teenagers who may move from self-sovereign to socialized, it's like oxygen for them. They finally feel like they belong. And it's just wonderful when they get there. It's amazing. It's funny. I was thinking we actually have a big move coming up. And so my kids are feeling more attached to their friends as they get older. And we're moving, I mean, not super far, but far enough that they'll be at a different school and with different people. Um, And it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. And I think this is a good conversation because it'll remind me to I, I just, I know myself and I, I often go for those technical solutions, you know, like how can I fix this now? Because I don't want my right. child to be upset or sad or feel left right. out. And that this is something that they're, it's going to help them grow. And it might be hard for a little while. 
you know, it might be something that we kind of have to just sift through for a little bit. Right. So, right. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Well, good luck with your move. Thank you. No, but it's, it's, uh, somebody described it to me the other day as you're trying to build the plane while it's flying. <laughs> like that is a really good way. It made me feel validated, you know, that it's, it's not so easy. Um, well, I, I think that's right, and what I will also turn the attention back to the adaptive framework. Um, so there's another uh, uh, chart that I shared with you, which was this um, on the uh, y-axis is disequilibrium. So the y-axis is the one that goes vertical, I hope, if I'm remembering <laughs> And then on the x-axis, right. which is horizontal, is uh, time. So again, we have disequilibrium going up and down, and we have time going right and left. And so this chart shows about how when we're doing uh, adaptive work, we have to have some level of disequilibrium. That and uh, this shows um, several lines. So the first line is um, about a technical problem. So you can imagine it's like an, um, a reverse U. So it goes um, up and down. And the technical problems don't require disequilibrium in order to fix them. If you go back to the plumbing example we talked about at the beginning of the call, uh, so all right, nobody likes it when you know the the shower is broken. So it's enough disequilibrium to call the plumber, and then as soon as the plumber comes and fixes it, the problem goes away. So the disequilibrium spikes a little bit, but then it's immediately um, it, it disappears. Uh, with adaptive work, it's it's different. So it still goes, you know, up along the level of disequilibrium and it gets to uh, a productive range of stress in order to get work done. Um, so if you think, for example, with the Me Too movement. So last year at this time, um, we had the um, Trump and Billy Bush on the bus um, talk, and I won't go into it, but basically that was leading to the um, Alyssa Milano doing the hashtag Me Too, and now here we are a year later, and you know there's been a lot that's happened over the course of, of the year. But you could argue that this adaptive problem of, um, you know, for lack of a better description, I'll just call it sexual assault, harassment, abuse, um, you know, in in that realm. So what happened with with the Me Too movement was that the level of disequilibrium got high enough so that work was getting done. Mm. So what was happening was is that people were all of a sudden talking about things that they never talked about. So instead of being full of shame and blame, you know, being on the, um, you know, either on the perpetrator or victim side, I mean, I think the shame and blame happens on both sides, but all of a sudden there were conversations that never were happening in in generations or ever. Um, So but what happened was, too, is that perhaps, after the election, when you know President Trump was elected, after having had all these revelations and all these accusations and all of this evidence of him, you know, obviously thinking that um, sexual assault, abuse, trust, and so on the blank is fine and perfectly acceptable, it's possible that you know the tolerance was too high, like the disequilibrium got so high that people couldn't take it anymore, and so we were all, you know, going under the covers after the election, thinking we just have to wait for four more years in order for what should be done on this. So, you know, this is an example of how, you know, adaptive work is not easy. It's, 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 you know, conversations that we don't want to be having. We 
these are the most difficult conversations that we can try to avoid altogether. And we have them when we think about how do we want to make the world a better place for our children? Do we really want it to be acceptable for um, you know people to be afraid in the workplace and that they can't even contribute to the work that's being done in the organization because they just don't know what's going to happen to them if they they don't touch me in that way, if they're worried if they're going to lose their job. And so, in any event, this is just one example of many adaptive problems that are out there in the world, and I'm just uh, trying to give a little bit of an overview of the difference between the technical and the adaptive. Oh, that's great. What, is there any comparison, or this is reminding me of some of the stuff I've read about growth mindset. Is this similar to that, or how does how is it different? Well, growth mindset is absolutely, you know, consistent with okay. Professor Heifetz and Professor Keegan's work. Um, you know, essentially, if we think that we can learn and grow and develop, then we will put the work into doing it. It's worth it to us. If we think we're just never going to learn, grow, and improve and develop, then why would we? So the fixed mindset versus growth mindset um, diet track is just, you know, it's very consistent with what we're talking about. And I think that if we just expand it to a more systemic view, uh, we think about the adaptive challenges that we actually have addressed. You know, that might give us a sense of like, okay, growth mindset works at a systemic level as well as an individual level. So, for example, if we go back to um, institutionalized racism. So, back in the time of President Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation, that was a huge step forward in the work of racial equality. Obviously, that was a very, very long time ago. And then when Martin Luther King did his work in the civil rights movement, another huge step along the way was made. But again, you know, it, it had a lot of work left to be done. And now we're seeing in this day and age the Black Lives Matter movement. So you can see the progress is being made, but it will not be solved. Like, Adaptive problems really are never fully solved. Mm. They're just addressed in each generation, and work is not necessarily linear. You know, it might seem secure at the time, but progress is being made. And so, in that sense, we as human beings, you know, collectively can say that our society is is showing that it can learn, grow, develop, and improve. Have Have there been any conversations in this field around? What people are talking about being the the world or the country being more polarized is that is there anything that people are finding like that people in it, it, am I making sense I don't know if I'm asking the question well but that that well, can, yeah, do you know what I'm talking about yeah okay yeah so you know uh, what we're seeing in you know polarization all over the world you know we can look closely at the United States so we can see it everywhere. Um, this is a classic example of applying a technical solution to an adaptive problem. So, we are living in a globalizing world, whether we like it or we not, we don't. You know, it, it's going to happen. We're, we're, we're seeing it. We're becoming more global. We're becoming, you know, a more globalized world, but really we're globalizing. It's happening, and it's not going to stop, but some people feel like if they want to, you know, go back in time to a simpler, simpler, uh, uh, era in our nation's history, which is the United States, for example. The reason why the Make America Great Again slogan really resonated with so much of the U.S. population is because they're seeing uh, globalization 
negatively affecting their lives and their children's lives. And when people panic that their kids are going to be worse off than them, that's when they want to, you know, put up a wall. And they want to stop, you know, the, the changes that are happening. And it may seem like a technical solution to the adaptive problem. Like, let's just prevent all immigration. And that way, we'll get the jobs at the universities and the people who are coming from foreign countries to be, um, you know, PhD students won't be able to come or what have you. So it absolutely is an example of an adaptive problem that, you know, people are trying to address in a technical way. And is there also any um, research or discussion about the differences between men and women in how easy it is to, you know, transition from technical to adaptive? Well, you know, that's an interesting question that I hadn't really considered. I mean, I think what what we sort of can, can probably agree on in most societies around the world is that generally boys and men are socialized to take formal authority roles. Um, and women and girls are not as much, but that's changing. I mean, we think about just generationally how far we've come, um, you know, from, from the way our mothers only, you know, have limited options, even though they moved mountains in the 70s, for example, with all of their women's rights. But again, there's still so much work to be done. But if we go to another uh, one of the charts that I shared with you, is the um, the difference in the difference between managing and leading. Uh, so I think in general, men are really, really, um, you know, socialized to be um, good at providing direction, protection, and order. These are like the three services that a formal authority provides in any organization or, or social system like a family. So for example, um, the technical is that they will provide, you know, both define the problems and define the solutions. And then they'll shield the family or the organization from any external threats. And they'll always, you know, restore order. Like these are things that boys and men are generally, you know, socialized to do. It doesn't mean that girls and women can't do it. It's just that our social systems are, are set up to sort of help uh, the masculine in, in this particular area. But I think when dealing with adaptive work, and this is on the side about leading, I think actually um, men and women are socialized. I think similarly in terms of. We don't really know, um, you know, adaptive problems. We don't even know how to define them or identify them or frame questions and issues and potential solutions. So I think that in, in general, when addressing adaptive problems, girls and women actually might have an advantage because they haven't been, you know, kind of given more of a role models and examples of how uh, necessary it is to provide those services. Um, so again, going down the, the right-hand side of the chart that I shared. So when leading and dealing with adaptive situations, you know, people in general, not just men, and, you know, but, you know, it's direction. It's saying, okay, I identify the adaptive challenge and framing the key questions and issues. And then the protection is like, okay, I'll let the organization feel external threats within a productive range of distress. And then going back to the idea of the level of this equilibrium. And the order is to regulate the security room within a productive range of checks. And so if we go back to the example of um, the matriarch, who we all know that she probably should stop driving, so we might have a difficult conversation, but maybe not push it too much. We might have to go back a week later and bring it up again. So in terms of answering your question about male or female, 
it's really, you know, it's all hands on deck when mm. addressing a doctor problem. You know, that it's, it's, it's really difficult to say one way or another, but I, you know, my hypothesis is that girls and women might actually be even more um, adept at addressing adaptive problems because they're not as limited with how they've been socialized in yeah, general. That makes sense. I've been talking to friends about something related to that, just with men, husbands, boys, is that the socialization and the fewer opportunities to really hash things out with friends. I think if you're lucky, you have men do have good friends that they can hash things out with, but it doesn't seem as common to me. And sometimes women have created these circles where they can just kind of like put it all on the table. And although if you're lucky also, not everybody has that. Um, And it just seems like we have more opportunities to just kind of like peel things apart, um, socialized or not social, you know what I mean? Like that, but I guess that's all part of being socialized in that way that men and boys are just socialized to talk about sports or, um, scores or just like facts, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that might, that might, that might be part of it. Right. And, uh, so I'm going to have to, uh, sign off for you soon. Oh, okay. I'm sure that I addressed one last piece of the puzzle just to, you know, just say, in general, problems have both technical and adaptive aspects or components to them. So almost any challenge that's out there has both, you know, in some way, shape, or form. And just to make sure I, I you know, have on the record of what the difference between technical and adaptive challenges, because those are kind of like a really key tenant of the framework. So in technical problems, the problem definition is understood. And the solution is known, and the people who have to do the work are the authorities and the experts. And the obstacles that get in the way of using technical solutions to, to any problem are time, money, and resources. So those are all the technical. And the adaptive challenges or the adaptive aspects or components of a challenge. It's when the problem is unclear and requires learning, and the solution is also unclear and requires learning. And the people who have to do the work are all the affected stakeholders, including the authorities and the experts. But it can't just be the formal authority figures. And then the most important aspect of adaptive challenges is that the obstacles that get in the way are the hearts, the minds, the loyalties, and the deeply held values of all the stakeholders. So that's why it's so messy, complex, complex and complicated because you know, you can throw money at a problem, but how do you change somebody's mind? Mm-hmm. You know, that takes time and, you know, a lot more than a conversation or two. It might take a lifetime of conversations to convince someone to even talk about things like sexual assault, harassment, abuse. And I think it yeah. takes a relationship, right? Like you're, you're not going to convince anybody of anything if you don't have some sort of relationship with someone. You know what I mean? Like, Anyway, yeah, that's true. That's I agree. And so, Megan, it's such a pleasure to talk with you. I'm so sorry I have another call to get on right now, but uh, is there anything else you need from me before I sign off? Well, there was one question I had, and this is usually the last question I ask for the podcast, and that is, what do you do for your own self-care to keep yourself healthy as you're dealing with all of these health and family issues? Sorry to end with the, I, sorry. (laughs) I was about to let you get away without it, but I feel like maybe, maybe you need it. Maybe you need this question. (laughs) I think that 
what I will say is um, when I used to work on Wall Street, I heard this wonderful phrase, which I've never forgotten, which is save off the top. So, for example, when you get your paycheck, you put a certain percentage right here for a 1K, and you don't even notice it's missing, and then all of a sudden years go by and you have enough day. So similarly, I talk about how I should exercise off the top. I should eat right off the top. I should rest off the top. I should meditate off the top. I should do yoga off the top. Like all these things, you know, but do I do them on a daily basis? No. You know, I, I try my best, but, <laughs> you know, life gets in the way. Right. But I think, you know, the whole idea is, you know, what do we want to be modeling for our children? Like, I don't want my kids to see me being stressed and tired and grouchy and, you know, just ornery and grumpy and all of that. So, you know, I, I hope more often than not they'll, they'll see me, um, you know, grounded and, you know, feeling like I'm, I'm taking care of myself. But who knows? The jury's out. How yes. Often. Well, I think that's true with all of us, though. That's the that's the uh, the uh, growth opportunity for all of us. Well, thank you so much. I love talking to you, and um, I appreciate everything you shared. You're welcome, Megan. It was a pleasure, and I can't wait to listen to the film. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. I feel like I just got to take a class at Harvard, which is kind of fun. These are the things that Susie Byers is teaching at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. So we've got a little fancy treat today. Um, and I love the things she's talking about because I do think that there's so much that applies to our day-to-day life that we can learn from and just sort of work on doing better. We're not going to be perfect with doing it a little bit better and being a little more mindful with some of the choices we're making. I love, Susie was so good at her information. I hung up on her by mistake at one point in the call and she said, do you want me to say it again? And if somebody asked me to say again what I was saying, I'd probably ask them, what was I saying? I don't know, but she knew exactly what she was saying and you can tell she uh, is a great teacher. So I just want to thank her for taking the time to talk with me and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.